Welcome to episode three of the Birding Life podcast. Today's guest is author, artist, speaker, and an amazing birder, Fancy Peacock. Fancy is going to speak about everything from how he got into birding, birding with kids, advice to young birders, warbler identification, painting birds, and a whole lot of other things in between. Make sure to stay tuned until the end of the podcast where I'll give you details of how you can win Fancy's bird book, a full field guide for kids. Like always, I'm proud that this podcast is associated with BirdLife Port Natal, a bird club that covers the Etiquini area in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. So before we listen to what Fancy had to say, I'm going to have a chat with Nicolette again. Welcome, Nicolette Forbes, the chair of BirdLife Port Natal. It's always good to chat to you on the show. Uh, Adam, thank you for having us again. So we are five weeks into lockdown in South Africa, and we spoke last week about the lockdown challenge that BirdLife Port Natal has been doing. Can you just share a little bit more on how that's been going since last week and also some species that might have been added to the list? Okay, Adam, thank you. Um, week four has been collated and we've got all the facts and figures and we are now on day 34. So we've only got one day left before we hit week five. And what is exciting is that we have seen a total of 252 species as a combined list between all the participants in the lockdown bird count. That's an incredible number of species. And for me, what is remarkable is that week four at 252 species has gone up from week three which was uh, another 232, I think. So we've actually increased that number of species, despite the fact that people have already been counting for, for four weeks. So that says that there's still new species creeping in. People are, are realizing that there's more and more around them. And the average number of species people can see in their gardens at the moment has now been lifted to 42. So again, it, it's showing that that number has increased from the week three average of 35 species in people's gardens. So the species curve is still going up. So unlike what we're trying to do with the virus, which is flatten the curve, the curve hasn't yet quite flattened. We're still managing to add species as we are looking and keeping an eye out with some fairly exciting species starting to creep in. Lots of peregrine falcons are being seen um, in the urban areas, which has been quite a nice surprise. We've got Bird, new birders that are looking out for things and are actually getting lifers as part of this. So they're seeing the, the birds for the very first time. And in the urban category, that average I gave you of 42 is actually for people that are sitting in the cities. So it's garden, urban gardens that are centered around the main cities. The other remarkable thing is that the rural category people, and we now have um, another five or six households competing in the rural category, those are people who are sitting out in much more open spaces, either on farms. We've got some lucky people that are in a game reserve and another two that are sitting in the boundaries of a World Heritage Site or just on the edge of the World Heritage Site at Samangaliso. And they keep us drooling with their lists because they have got, um, in the highest case, in excess of 110 species with many of the Zululand specials creeping in. We've also managed to see what the most common species are that are being recorded by households. And that's quite an interesting thing. I think it's been quite interesting. Also, we were chatting about this just before we went and started recording is about the photography that people have been, some of the people have been doing. I think you speak about Roger Hogg, the photos he's been getting in his garden. 
yeah, some of the photographs coming through from people have been really lovely. Um, we've got some talented photographers in the club, and that's becoming a much more important part of birding. Some people are actually only carrying their cameras rather than using binoculars at this stage. But also, aside from the photographs, what has been interesting is the close encounters that people have had with birds in their gardens. So we've had a number of people send in pictures of wagtails sitting on their laps and on their heads, and plum-colored starlings or violet-backed starlings, as they now are, that have had flown into windows and were resuscitated and sent on their way, as well as a yellow-rumped tinkerbird that um, was having breakfast with one of our participants, having a grape and some Prima Orientalis seeds, pigeonwood seeds, before it went on its way. And then what are the plans if the lockdown continues in, in KZN? What, are the, what plans do you have in place in terms of the lockdown challenge? Well, we, we put it out in the last report to the members and asked what they would like to do. Do we want to um, actually stop on the official day, which is tomorrow, and do a tally and see who have, who have got the four prizes? Because there are four possible winners with two prizes in each of the categories of rural and urban. But the almost unanimous vote that has come through so far has been, no, let's carry on, let's carry on. We're still adding things. I had one comment, and the same applies to my garden, actually, um, from one of the other participants to say her erythrina tree, her coral tree, is about to come into flower, and she's sure it will be flowering if we're in lockdown for another two or three weeks, and that would bring a whole lot of other species to her garden. So it's looking like if we are if we remain in lockdown in Etikwini, that we will continue the, the challenge, the competition, through to whatever the official unlockdown date is. And I asked the question last week, but just to ask the question again, how can people join up with the lockdown challenge and participate? Well, one of the points we made was that it has been members only, BirdLife Port Natal members only, but we have relaxed that because it's nice to have people getting interested and getting involved. It's only members that are eligible for the prizes, but that doesn't seem to have worried some of the other people. We've actually had people join also as a result of this. So we've got some new members that have joined in the last week or two, which is lovely. But if people do want to join, all they need to do is send an email to LBC, Lockdown Bird Count, at blpn.org. And I think you've been putting that in the in the text section of the of the chats, and then also if they if they really want to see how to how what's going on, what are the rules, how they participate, to go to the web page, the BirdLife Port Natal web page, and there is a special menu item for BirdLife Port Natal's lockdown bird count competition. And the first thing there is is firstly the counts, but then there's a poster which gives you all the details of the competition. Oh, thanks so much, Nick. That really appreciated. What I'll do again is put all the links in the comment section of this podcast. But thanks, Nick, for your time. I really appreciate you being a part of the podcast again. And hope you have a great day. Thanks, Adam. So welcome, Fancy, And thanks so much for agreeing to come on the show. Just to start off, how has lockdown been for you and the family? Thanks, Adam. It's a, it's a pleasure being here and I'm looking forward to our chat. Lockdown's not been too bad for me. Look, I work from home just painting and writing and that, so it doesn't really make a difference to me. In fact, I've been able to focus and get quite a lot of work done. It's been a little bit worse for my wife. She, uh, she's missing going outside and so on. Um, it's been, they've been very strict on this estate that we live in, which is a pity because it's a, it's a really nice eco-estate. I mean, I could have spent lots of time out birding, but 
you know, it's all for the for the greater good, I guess. We're keeping a we're keeping a lockdown list, but down here in Langebaan in the Western Cape, it's not. I mean, you know, you don't you're not expecting great diversity, but we I don't know 50 species or something like that. We do get some quality things though. I had a Karoo lark displaying over the house this morning, and um, some shell ducks flying over, various eagles and things like that. So it's it's pretty cool. Um, uh, it's definitely an unprecedented situation. Very weird. Very surreal. The whole thing. And and you on that side, how's it been? It's been good. I've been doing a little bit of garden birding between work, and I think I've got fifty six species. Managed to get a little sparrowhawk this morning, which is new for my. In our 150 kilometer radius list, uh, I was quite excited with that this morning. I actually thought it was a yeah. common fiscal and, you know, put, picked the binoculars up and looked through the binoculars and it was a little sparrow because I was really excited. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they're about the same size as the fiscal, huh? Fancy little things. Yeah, a little. So, yeah, Fancy, right off the bat, I'm going to ask you a question. And I've always wondered this, and I'm sure other people wonder, the, wonder this also. Is yeah. Peacock your real surname, or is this just a gangster birding name that you've come up to impress other other birders? You know, I had uh, had it one one professor at university who insisted that it was a, a, a phenomenon called nominate determinism. In other words, that your name determines what profession you're going to go into. But um, I know it's just a happy coincidence. I mean, I can show you my birth certificate if you like. <laughs> and it's quite an honour for me to be to be named after a bird, and not not just any bird. I mean. We take them for granted, Ephel, but I mean, if you if you think about it, it's such a gorgeous creature. Mm. So it's quite a quite an honour for me to be, and it, and it's obviously a nice um, a nice look in terms of marketing and and so on for for me as a professional birder. <laughs> and what was that? Uh, I remember reading on your blog about when you wanted to name your one of your children, and you had to be careful about how you named them, and how did that work out? Yeah, you don't want to give them too obvious bird names. You don't want to call them like Robin Peacock or something like that. <laughs> so no, we uh, we snuck in. Um, we had middle names for them. So the one my oldest son is called Christian Regulus Stephanus Peacock. So the poor thing's got three names. Stephanus was just like a family name that we had to do. It's both my full name. That's where Fancy comes from. It was it became Stephanie and then just Fancy. It's really just a baby name that's sort of stuck, but it's too late now. And then. Uh, Regulus is the, the genus of the kinglets, the, the beautiful little songbirds from the northern hemisphere. And it's also a constel well, a star. And then for the other the other um, other son, Owen, so he's Owen Callum Peacock. Um, Callum is from Columba, which is a, a dove or a pigeon, and that's also a constellation. So they've got these really weird, unpronounceable middle names that, that are both astro meaning and uh, ornithological meaning. So <laughs> there you go. Well, that's really awesome, eh? So on your website, you describe yourself as a professional birder, but who pays the bills by being a publisher, author, artist, designer, speaker, consultant, and bird vendor. Most South Africans know you as a phenomenal birder and an LBJ and wader expert. But tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is the man behind the birds? Uh, the man behind the birds. <laughs> Honestly, birds are sort of, I, I live and breathe birds. I even dream about it. I remember once I did a, a comedy talk um, somewhere, and uh, I mentioned this, this, the fact that I often dream about it. Well, not often, literally every time I dream, there's a bird somewhere in the background or something. I've actually, I'm actually keeping a list of them, um, which is very weird. And understandably, one of the guys was listening. I saw he got this nice big eye roll. Like, how ridiculous is this? But it's true. I mean, birds are just a central part of my life. 
And I was, uh, I grew up in Pretoria, skinny little kid who liked birds and skateboarding. And then I decided to make, try and make a career out of birds, which is very fulfilling, but not that lucrative. Hence all the other personas, all the other hats that I have to wear. So yeah, and, and then my other big love is, is, is books and creativity, so artwork and that sort of thing. And I've sort of found this very specialized niche in a way to, to combine my, my various skills and loves into, into trying to make a living as a birder. Just about at the point when I'm starting to feel like it was the right decision. 17, 18 years old and the whole world's in front of you. There's some very difficult decisions for make, to make for, for a teenager. But I'm very happy that I did go down this route and ended up where I am today. And it's quite a different kind of route because obviously a lot of people in when they want to make birds a living go into ornithology and that kind of thing, where you've gone a little bit of a different route. You haven't, we'll chat about it just now, where you've, you've worked at a natural science museum, but you know, you've gone a bit of a different route in terms of almost a bit risky, if you want to say, if we could say that. Yeah, it's not very traditional. Yeah, so I basically see, see my, my job as, as a go between between the, the scientific community and, this, and the public. Um, so that's, that's more or less where I see my, my role. I mean, I tried the, being a, an academic, and I mean, I do have a degree in, in zoology and so on, but there's just not enough uh, creativity for me in that field. And then the guiding thing, I, I mean, I do a little bit of guiding now and then, but it's also, you know, I'm quite a, quite a family man, so being away from home and traveling that much just uh, wouldn't really work for me. Um, I mean, I guess your other options would be to, to go into some sort of conservation work, but yeah, it's limited. It's a, it's not a career that's um, that's very diverse, but I do feel like it's it's growing. You know, there's a big movement to, towards environmental consciousness, and I see young people very encouraging to see all the young people getting getting more into into the environment and that sort of thing. So it was a bit different when I grew up in the late '80s and '90s, but yes. So tell us a little bit about your birding journey. How did this passion get started? Um, honestly, it was, it was basically my first memories out of birds. So it's, it's been a long, long road. So I've been birding for 30 years or something like that. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure exactly where it started. Lots of people have a, a specific trigger species or something special, some moment that they can pinpoint and say this is where it started. But for me... I guess my, my parents were also always sort of nature people, not specifically birds, but, you know, we spent a lot of time in Kruger Park. And at one point we had a timeshare on a game farm and so on. So somewhere in, in my childhood, something must have just stuck. I went, I went through all these phases as a kid where I liked airplanes and dinosaurs and snakes. And, you know, but birds, birds has been the one thing that's, that's stuck with me through the years. I think why that's the one is that it's because, because it's so accessible, you know, it's, it's enough diversity to sort of keep you occupied for your entire life, really. But it's not overwhelming. You can sort of master it. Um, and then birds communicate in the same way that humans do, through sight and sound, not, not through smell like most other mammals. So we connect with them in a, on a daily basis. I mean, they're all around us. We see them and we can hear them. We can understand them. Um, so somewhere there's something just triggered as a kid. And, and then that collection mania kicks in, you know, the starting to keep a list and traveling to go and see all these things and just see how so yeah i can't really pinpoint a specific moment but somewhere in the in the sort of mid 80s some some magic thing struck me and, and like some of my first memories like i said are of birds i can remember seeing um, a black round night here in one night where we were, i can't remember where it was or when it was exactly but i do have this vivid memory of a 
of a, a black ground hydrogen in a spotlight standing in a little stream. Sure. Um, and so that must have made a very big impression on me. I must have been six or five or six at the time. So it's, it's been a long road. And what's your life sitting on at the moment? Honestly, I haven't updated in, in a while, but it must be somewhere in the 870s or something like that for Southern Africa. And then I'm just starting to build an international life risk, which is a bit more of a challenge given the, uh, the strength of our currency down here in South Africa. But uh, yeah, after recent trips to Brazil and Malawi, that must be, I, don't, I guess, between two and 3,000, something like that. So it's, uh, there's still a long way to go. I mean, to see all 10,000 odd birds on Earth would be, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's really possible. I think it's, it might be a good idea to set some sort of realistic target, say, 500 species in your lifetime or something like that but yeah but it's fun i mean and, and it's not really about building a list for me it's about starting really having an excuse to get to all these weird places and i'm sure you've had this feeling where you're out birding somewhere and you think how the hell did i end up here like, what am i doing here you know where am i and that to me is the, uh, the one of the best parts of birding that it's that's it's sort of just an excuse to get you to places that normal human beings would never see you know would never never end up in weirdest places and situations isn't that right yeah i actually remember a funny story and it's it's almost like birding related but it's not birding related we took a, a morning trip to Eston, which is about 40 kilometers away and we birded some of the the dams along the side of the road with the farms and on the way back Eston's this small little town i mean it's you blink and it's gone and we found this amazing second-hand shop it, i mean there was books on sale and there. i love books uh-huh. I've got too many books and, and music books in this, and they were like dirt cheap. And it probably is one of the best secondhand shops I've ever found. And, and, and I would never have found that shop if I wasn't out birding. So we found places that I'd never have found if I wasn't looking for birds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, on this, on this recent South American trip again, we, uh, you know, when people hear you're going to Brazil, they assume you're going to Rio or Sao Paulo or something. But I mean, with the moment we got there, we just drove right out of the city and we went into the rural the farmlands and we stayed with local people and just got a real authentic feeling for for what what the life is about you know not not seeing all the touristy things i've seen enough cathedrals and bridges and statues to last me a lifetime i want to see the real the real thing you know out there not 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 the sort of um, touristy facade so we had an interview with trevor he was on our first episode and he spoke about his first date with margaret and they went to sewage works trevor said it was one of the better sewage works around so tell us about how you you met ronelle your wife and tell us about your first date yeah, so ronelle myself we we actually um high school sweethearts so we started dating i think i was 17 and she was 16 or something like that and i remember for for I don't know if it was our first date, but one memorable date at least early on is I, I took her to go and see a, a registered snuff tail. And as you know, that's, um, that's a whole operation out in some isolated wetland somewhere and you have to sit still for an hour and there's mosquitoes biting you in the face and you, know, you play the sound and you watch for this little movement in the grass. But I think the whole experience was just so exciting for her and also seeing my excitement at seeing this little black blur shoot past. You know? um, so I think that made quite an impression. And I always like to tell people a story that on our wedding day, sort of as we, as we got out the church and we were standing around mingling with the guests, Renal sort of caught my attention. And she, and she pointed out a dusky lark sort of walking along the edge of the, of the lawn there. <laughs> so I knew, I knew right why I made the right decision in, in marrying her. 
And um, yeah, she's in a, an odd position because she, she hangs out with all these sort of very advanced birders. You know, the talk is always a little bit above her, goes above her head and that. But I th- so I think she, she underestimates her birding skills and birding abilities a little bit, where she's actually in her own right become a, a really good birder, really sharp as well, much better eyesight than I am. We hosted you at a local breeding festival a few years ago. And one thing I noticed about you was you were an amazing father. And a lot of birders really battle with this balance between birding and family. So what tips would you give to birders to get this balance right? Yeah, kids change life. Eh? It's, there's no going back there. But what I've really enjoyed is actually experiencing things new through their eyes. So, you know, you've, I've seen thousands of, of whatever species but I mean when they see it for the first time that excitement that joy that recognition it's, it's awesome so it's almost like I'm seeing everything again and and when you have kids you know you can't you can't expect them to fall into your full on 100% um, birding regime they must just mm. you know you must sort of find that balance in, in between making them making it interesting for them for a couple of hours you can't push it too long obviously but you also have to encourage them to sort of push themselves a little bit, you know. So you have to find that balance. It's, it's tricky, but you find all sorts of ways to make it work. Like um, I've recently got quite interested in, in dragonflies and I'm, I'm really trying to do this with my sons, you know. So we sort of page through the field guide together and learn together and so on. And like the other day, we, we were exploring along this little stream up near Dillstrom. This was just before lockdown. There was, there's this one dragonfly called a, a dancing jewel. It's a very beautiful little thing with red and white legs that it flashes to for different functions but anyway so we were looking in the book before and we saw this little dancing jewel and my son said no that's his favorite and it's so beautiful and, that. and then um while we were along the stream we sort of split up and he came running up the track and said dad dad come look i found a I found a dancing jewel and um, you know and they're quite common i've seen i've seen them many times but i made a big show out of sort of not believing him saying no that's impossible mm-hmm. You know, they're super rare, it can't be, and whatever. And he, and he took me by the hand and he went and showed me this thing, and he was so proud. You know, and then I made a big fuss about it and took photographs and whatever. And he was, he really enjoyed that experience so much. He just like randomly shouted, This is the best day of my life. So seeing that little dancing jewel through his eyes was much better than actually, you know, seeing some rare special thing. So that's what I mean that you get to experience everything anew. I think it sounds like you've almost. You haven't separated, you've allowed them to be part of your journey and you've become a part of their journey. I'm sure you've learned more about birds when you started to see it through their eyes. Mm, absolutely. The problem with birds is, you know, they're small and fast and they're distrustful of humans. So, and, and looking through binoculars is a bit of a challenge to kids. My, my oldest son, who's seven now, he's just starting to sort of get into it now. So in the beginning, if you can get some sort of hands-on experience, that's, that's great. You could maybe take them to a zoo where you can see the birds up close or, you know, or take them to a ringing thing where they can handle the birds or, you know, if a, if a bird flies in the house and you can catch it and have them hold it and so on. So that sort of thing makes a big impression I've also seen. And also not, not only birds, but any sort of, you know, insects and little geckos and, and whatever, anything that they can touch. You know, kids, they, they want to touch everything. So I've also found that's quite an effective strategy is to, and feathers. So my, my, my younger son, he brings me all the feathers that he picks up in the garden. So we've got a whole collection and then we go through the book and we see like which bird's feather is this and how do we know and we measure it and photograph and file it away nicely. So, um, you know, you have to be creative, find ways to, to make it fun for them. I mean, also you don't want to, you know, you don't want to push your thing onto them. I mean, if they're really not 
into it, then you can't force them. But I do think that that birding and uh, not not just birding, but nature in general, is, is a great way for kids to escape the sort of normality of life. You know, it sort of teaches them freedom and liberty. It's a healthy healthy form of escapism from the routines of normal life. I think. So I think it's a great gift that you that you can give your kids. So while we're speaking about kids, you wrote a phenomenal a kids bird field guide, which I'm pretty sure is probably one of the first full bird field guides like for kids that has been done. What was the thought process behind that and how did that come and how did that come together? I just want to say on a side note before you answer that question, it all that's marketed as a kid's book, it's an amazing book. I think for any new birder out there, it's a book that I really would suggest they get their hands on. I think it's it makes birding so accessible. So you know, how did that all come together? Well, if you want the, the full background story, there was that um, flock at sea, that pelagic trip that we all did through BirdLife South Africa. When was that? A few years ago. Um, anyway, so f- before that, Renal came and she asked me to help her sort of just recap pelagic birds. And just, you know, just the basics, the common ones, and how do you distinguish a, a black-dot albatross from a, from a yellow-nosed or whatever, that, that sort of basic thing. So then I produced these little... Um, these little cartoony, cartoon-type illustrations with just little annotations, very, very basic. And basically, initially, it was just for Renal, but then I thought, well, I might as well just put this on my website and have people download it if they want. And that turned out to be quite popular, so the whole ship was running around there with this little PDF, laminated PDF. Um, and at, at one point, I actually saw one fly, floating in the ocean as well that had blown off the boat. <clears throat> but anyway, so, so that was quite popular, so I thought, well, maybe we can expand this concept to, to all of it. You know, have these sort of very simplified cartoon type drawings for all of them. And it sort of evolved from there. The illustrations, they become a little, little bit less cartoony, a little, little bit more realistic and shape-wise and so on and so on. But the central, central dogma for the, for the book was just to make it very simple, as simple as possible. Not to show juveniles and females and molting things. You know, just show the colorful red male. That's the, you know, you want to see the, that's the one you want to see, you know. Show a red bishop male, not a, a female or some something. So as simple as it can be and also as fun as it can be. So the book's got minimal text the maximum fun. That's sort of the, the slogan of the whole thing. So there's all sorts of little games and challenges hidden in it and the little facts uh, you know, interesting factoids and things. So it, it was really fun project to uh, to work on that. And believe it or not, it's also the first time that I actually write in, in Afrikaans. I'm, I'm Afrikaans oh. speaking. It was a interesting learning curve doing a, a translating a book into Afrikaans as well. So I'm yeah, very proud of it. I think it's it's probably the the product that I'm most most happy with. That why it came out and how it's been received and the sort of difference it's making and getting kids and people interested in in, in, in birds. That oh, was a great, great book. You really did a great job on that. So you worked for two years at Titsong Museum of Natural Science. It used to be called the Transvaal Museum before as an ornithologist. So tell us a little bit about that time. What did that involve? Yeah, good times. It was a very, very interesting job. I mean, basically, I was the collections manager for the ornithology department. So basically, I had, um, I can't remember exactly, but something like 40,000 study skins. Um, do you know what a study skin is? It's, it's when they basically remove all the all the fleshy parts from a bird so you leave the parts of the skeleton and then you and the skin and the feathers and you put cotton wool or something inside 
I saw that I think those specimens can remain like that for hundreds of years. And several of the ones that we had in the museum were actually two, 200 years old. But so you've basically got like a library full of, of birds. So you can go and open the cuckoo drawer and, you know, get 50 African cuckoos out of there and compare them. And, you know, I did, did a lot of um, stuff on night jars while I was there and, and, and the cuckoos and all, all various things. You know, you just get inspired and you walk and open the drawer and check, check stuff out and measure things and... That was a fantastic job. I also did, um, did a bit of taxidermy. So uh, I can tell you what, the, what, what a bird's brain looks like. Mm-hmm. It's not very attractive. Yeah, that was also interesting. So you open a freezer and you decide what bird you want to you skin today. And, you know, there's marina trogans and I sort of fluffed owls. And I think I skinned a tighter falcon once. And, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing opportunity to be able to see birds up close like that. And just to study the anatomy, you know, the skeleton and the organs and the you know what they ate you can actually open the the gizzard so birds have got this muscular gizzard it's like their stomach basically you can cut it open and see what they what they ate and i remember this one time we were skinning a, what is it? it was some sort of turn maybe a sooty turn or something like that and i pressed on the bird's breast for some reason and it actually made a sound <laughs> it's quite morbid this this talk taking a morbid <laughs> but there was a little a little squeal from a sooty turn there in the office <laughs> very strange so no, it was a it was a fun job, really, uh, really interesting. So if I'm correct in saying you've written, I think five books, is that correct? Um, yes, yes, five. One of them was co-authored um, with Etienne Laurier, the Birding Hunting book, mm. and then I've had a hand in a bunch of other stuff. We're just completing the the new Sassel book, which is going to be pretty exciting. So I, I did all I read painted all the um, pelagic birds, and that's going to be um, pretty exciting to see to see that. And then at the moment, I'm just about finishing off the um, 200 illustrations for of prosimians, um, lemurs and bush babies and lorises and things like that for the Handbook of the Mammals of the World. So that's, um, that's what I'm currently doing. I, I think something I love about your books is the accessibility of your books. I'm not anywhere close to being an ornithologist or, you know, intellectually minded, let me say that much. Um, but what I love about your books is that they, they're very accessible, they're very readable. Most field guides are great for when you go into the field, but it's not like a book you're going to sit down, make a cup of coffee and sit back and be able to read. But the Waiters book, the LBJ book, your, the book you did on puppets, it's, it's books that have been able to actually sit down, make a cup of coffee and, and actually read. So how do you approach your writing and how do you feel that you've grown as an author over the, over the years? Yeah, I, um, I tend to write too much. So it's, for me, the challenge normally is, is, is sort of cutting it down, editing it down. And so, I mean, birds are fascinating. You, I mean, the, the, the migrations and the calls and the behaviours and the nesting biology. There's just so much to talk about. And you know, the identification aspect of it is only, it's only really the start. There's, there's, uh, there's a whole world to birds. And I, I try to always bring a little bit of, of that across. I guess as a, as a writer, I've matured in the way that I now feel like I don't have anything to prove to anybody. So I don't want to impress anybody with scientific jargon or, you know, other complicating things or whatever. Um, I just like to bring that message across that 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 nature is is wonderful mm. and we should appreciate. And in this, in the simplest, most fun, accessible, entertaining way possible. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but you know, like I said earlier, so I see my my position as a sort of go between between the the academic community and the sort of highly technical mm. publications, the peer reviewed papers, and that, that they do. And the, um, and the and the public um, sort of bridging that that gap. 
if I compared your Pippet book to your your LBJ book and your Raiders book, for example, I found the they're a lot simpler. They're a lot more. They're a lot more readable. The the, the newest stuff. Yes, exactly. I, I always feel that um, if you're writing something and, and and only a small subset of people can understand your language, then I don't think that's a successful publication. I think you want to make it as accessible as possible. I mean, what's the point otherwise in in, in writing something? You know, for example, when in preparing these Lima illustrations, I must have read three hundred odd um, scientific papers and. And it's, it's tough reading sometimes. Eh? It's, it's really uh, very technical. So you almost have to be a specialist to understand to understand it. So, I mean, there is a place for that, of course, um, peer review and, and academic publishing process and journals and all that. But also I, I feel like that knowledge needs to be, what's the word, disseminated into, into the public sphere. And I think that's, that's critical. And nowadays with, with uh, the internet and social media and so on, there's so many platforms to distribute knowledge that, it's amazing how people have this thirst for, for information. It's gratifying to be able to fill that role. The SA Berta asked the question, when will you be printing more copies of your LBJ book? <laughs> yeah, I get that question quite a lot. Um, the problem is that you, that you really have to print a couple of thousand to make it economical. So I'm not quite sure that the market is, is, is there yet. So I'm keeping a list of people who are interested. And then, you know, if we do decide to do a reprint, I'll, I'll be the first to know. But I will say that there are some other upcoming projects. I can't really talk about them too much yet, but towards the end of this year and so on, we're going to be launching some exciting new stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person who always looks forward instead of, instead of backwards, you know. So uh, it's difficult for me to, to um, think to, to all the work when there's something new and exciting that I'm keen to, to produce. And then Birds by Kelvin asks, when are you going to be doing a Raptor book? Oh, geez, Raptors. I, I actually started doing a Raptor book. I did some plates and lots of illustrations and that, but then I sort of just chickened out halfway through. Um, raptors are really my weakest point. Maybe because they, they don't really vocalize that much. It's, it's complicated. I mean, with all these plumage changes over sometimes five or six years to, to reach adult plumage. And, you know, for example, there's a big difference in shape between juvenile Raptors and adult Raptors. Like the, the wing shape and the tail length. And it's, it's a really complicated thing, and I want to do it properly if I get the time at some point. But yeah, our Raptors book will definitely be on the cards at some um, indetermined point in the future. <laughs> I think another thing that makes your books amazing, not just the text, it's the art that's in the books. And you're really an amazing artist who manages to capture detail on the birds that, that you paint. So how did you start painting birds, and, and how has it helped you in your study of birds? Um, for me, the two are really intertwined. I mean, I can't really separate them. So when I'm, when I'm looking at a bird, I'm thinking of how, how I would draw it and, and vice versa. You know? So um, I always tell people that if you want to become a better bird, one of the best ways, if not the best way, is to, to draw what you see. And, and lots of people say, no, I can't draw. I don't have any talent or anything like that, which is a myth. I mean, it's all about practice. It's like any skill in life. If you last picked up a pencil, pencil when you were in primary school, it's, you're going to be disappointed with your first results. But I mean, if you, if you keep at it, it's going to look better. But that's sort of besides the point because the, the goal in drawing something is in the, in the process, not in the product. So you might as well crumple that piece of paper up and throw it away when you're done. But drawing something just helps you to, to observe more closely. And that's, that's the point. So... Just as, as an example, that's sort of currently top of my head. There's uh, while I'm talking to you now, there's one of these 
striped mouse or four-striped grass mouse or whatever they now call them, Raptimus familiar. I know there was some some taxonomic thing that I didn't quite keep up with, but there's one of them running around here in my office. They, they, I keep the sliding door on, so they're always in the archer. But, you know, you, you think of a striped mouse, and you know it's got stripes on its back, but how many stripes does it have? What colors are they? How long are they? So once you actually take the time to stop and look in detail, as if you were going to draw this thing, then you suddenly realize exactly how, how something looks. So just just seeing something is not the same as, mm. as actually watching it. it was, you know? So for me, drawing and observing are sort of intertwined. It's almost like, like I have to express what I see somehow, either in words or in a picture or whatever the case might be. Um, I mean, a lot of people would say, why don't you just take a photograph? And sure, I mean, there is definitely um, a lot of validity to to that question and it's it's great i mean i've i use photographs as reference every day but again it's the process of of observing that you want to that you want it's a skill that you need to learn it's not a you know just because you can see something in your eyes doesn't mean you're really taking it in so if i were to say to you draw a bicycle i mean you've seen thousands of bicycles in your life but i mean if you were to put a put a piece of paper in front of you and start drawing a bicycle, which you know, like where, where does this bar go and this piece of metal connects to that? And, you know, but if I, if I said to you, okay, there's a bicycle, look at it for, for a minute, then draw it. You know, you'll, you'll take that information in much, much deeper and uh, remember it much better. You know what I'm saying? It's a, sorry, it's weird examples with a bicycle in the mouth. You know, you, I think you get the, the drift. Well, it kind of flows into the next question. And this is maybe a bit of a practical question. From reading your stuff, you can see that you're a person that has... The ability to spend time in nature, not just spend time in nature, but but to really observe what is happening. It's almost like this this idea of nature journaling, that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. A lot of birders have incredibly long lists. You know, they can tell you how many birds they've seen on, on their lists and it's always about the list. But when you sit down and you ask some of them about the birds on their list, they don't all know a lot about those birds. And when I was actually thinking about this whole thing, uh, it's almost like if you're just going to chase after a list, birding eventually gets quite boring because you're eventually going to get, you're eventually going to run out of birds to see. How can exactly. birders go beyond simply having a list of birds that they're trying to tick off to actually starting to understand the birds that they can look at? How can they actually grow in observation skills on the field? How would that practically look when they go out? Yeah, well, I mean, this lockdown is actually the perfect opportunity for that. You know, you have to sit in your garden and just see what comes to you. And it's all about just picking up patterns, you know, just you know, noticing the little thing. There's a, a greyback testicular out here that he always comes to the same bush at the same time of day for some reason. It's it's part of his um his daily sort of circuit that he forages in. So, you know, just, just picking up little observations like that. And don't, you don't have to go and sit in some forest for three weeks and study something. Just sort of uh, opening your... Your consciousness to to little patterns that play out around you all day. When I was in high school, I, I started to wonder about the seasonal movements of palm swift. So what I did is I, in the back of one of my school books, I made a little calendar, and every day I just looked up at some point and checked if I saw any palm swifts. And if I did, I made a tick, and otherwise I made a cross. Again, I mean that information it might be of some sort of scientific value, but it's it's all about the teaching yourself that the discipline of observation, you know? And I think that's where the, where the difference comes in, is, is um, being those patterns. But, I mean, the fun thing about birding is that you can do it the way you like it. You don't have to, you can chase the list if you want, you can do scientific research if you want, you can, you know, whatever gives you pleasure. There's no hard and fast rules. And that's one of the, the great things about it. 
but but certainly if you if you want to become a bit better bird, I would say one of the important things to do is just to slow down, you know, as you said, um, slow down, see what's around, and maybe instead of trying to see many birds, try and see one bird properly. Maybe see if you can distinguish male and female through their behavior. Maybe you can see a small size difference. Observe them, see if they've got a nest. Maybe they're carrying nesting material or foraging in a specific area. You know, juveniles, see when they molt, all, all that sort of stuff. There's a whole world just just contained in one species. You don't necessarily have to go and see them all, although that is the, the fun part as well. Yes. What One thing about your books also, when you do the write-ups, there's a lot of detail that goes into the write-ups. It's almost as if you have a, a remarkable understanding of what you're writing about. How can birders grow in the area of bird identification? Are there tips that you can give birders on a practical basis, how they can grow in terms of identifying the birds that they see? Sort of a very basic thing is that we tend to focus on color way too much. It's really just one of the factors that you need to consider. So, so size um, and shape, that, those are both um, critically important. And I would say much more so than, than color. So if, if a professional birder comes to, a, or, a, or an advanced birder comes to a flock, of birds you know they'll just do a quick binocular sweep and they'll tell you okay it's that and that species or um, there's one or two of these in amongst them or whatever and that's all to do with with um, this experience that you gain just by looking at size and posture and shape relative links with the bull and the legs and that so one of my suggestions would be to sort of almost become colorblind and just look at the uh, at the other um, factors the other features of birds so i think that's a that's a good place to start is to sort of train your mind to do that, I mean, one way that you that you could do that is to play a little game, where you uh, where you describe a bird to someone, and they must guess what it is. But you can't say anything about color, so you can say how big it is and where it was sitting and how it twitched its tail or whatever. You know that crest and bull was this shape, but you can't say anything about color. So that's a, a nice little practical exercise that people can try to to sort of teach your mind how to look beyond color. That's something fun we started tonight. Actually, we got a couple mm-hmm. of birders, and I'm trying to grow in terms of, of raptor identification. Now, I really struggle to get things to stick, but I find if I speak about things with other people, it, it sticks a lot more. So we started a little a little Zoom group, and what we do is, for example, today, we just looked at peregrine falcons and lander falcons. All we looked at today, what, what's the difference between yeah. two of them? And we literally would put the, yes, put the pictures on the screen and, and say, hey, what are you guys seeing? What are you observing between the birds? Then we obviously went to the field garden. You know, we spent nearly an hour just talking about peregrine falcons and lander falcons. And it's trying to ask the right questions. And I think, yeah. The right questions. And that's what yeah. it's all about. And I'm, I'm sure you would have seen that people interpret things differently as well. So what's small for one guy is big for another guy. And what's long for one guy is short for another guy. You know what I'm saying? So it, there's always this, you have to find that balance between what you see, what you don't see, and what other, what other people see. It's a, it's a very interesting game. It's, it actually teaches you a lot about sort of observational skills and how we use our senses and the psychology behind it. We'll speak to Etienne at some point about the psychology of birding. He's, uh, he's very into that. Interesting theories that he's got. So let's paint a scenario. You wake up one morning, the conditions are stunning. You head out to your favorite spot for waders. You arrive there and there are thousands of birds in the roost in front of you. Terns, sandpipers and tons of other birds. On a practical level, how would you bird this type of scenario? Well, in two phases. Uh, the first phase would just be a quick scan. Probably with binoculars, I would just quickly scan through, through the group, see if anything jumps out. And what I have found is that if there is a rare bird or something unusual in amongst them, it jumps out. You see it pretty much immediately. It's not always like that, but in a couple of cases where I found rare things, it's 
then you know it, it jumps out. So that's phase one, and then phase two, you start with the um, careful scanning, and yeah, yeah, a telescope could really be uh, be essential, and then work from one direction, so left to right, and you and you and you work through the birds, and sort of the idea is to identify each and every individual. Okay, sometimes you know one will have its head hidden or whatever, so you all have to skip it. But the basic the basic strategy is to go through each one. And then it's often useful if you do this in tandem with someone else. If there's another bird there, you both start from the same point and say, okay, so we've got three sandalings, two ring plovers, and, and then every now and then coordinate and say, okay, so which one are you looking at? Are the one scratching its, scratching its head or stretching its wing? Work through it like that. And you've got two people working through the same group of birds, then um, I think I find that's a very effective strategy. Um, and then it's also always worth checking things along the edges. Sometimes these vibrant birds tend to hang out on their own for some reason. They sort of just off to the side a little bit. So any birds like that would be good just to, to double check them. Yeah, so that would that be my main strategy. But it, I mean, it all depends on the situation and how far the birds are in the place and so on. And of course, then once once you sort of halfway through that flock, some gull or falcon will come over and everyone will take flight and then they'll have to start over. That's, uh, that's the fun of it. And obviously make sure you've got Fancy Peacock's waiters book. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's a given. goes without saying. <laughs> okay, so you're viewed as a specialist in the area of vocalizations, or as common folk call it, bird calls. How did you develop an interest in this area? Because it's an area that so many people find so tricky. Yes, I mean, it's like learning a whole new language, isn't it? Yeah, I've recently got into sound recording a bit, so I've, I've bought one of these parabolic dish microphones. It looks like a Weber a lid of a Weber price and I'm running around everywhere with this thing, recording bird sounds and that. And what I've realized is that birds have a whole language. So what, you know, that, the 20 seconds or whatever on your bird, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. Each individual bird sounds different and they can distinguish each other individually. I'm not talking about species level. I mean, as individuals, they can tell, oh, that's my neighbor on that side. That's my neighbor on that side. That's fascinating. And, and then and in addition to that, they've got, a, they've got all these different calls for different contexts. You know, they've got, threat calls and alarm calls and you know there's there's actually different calls for different types of predators and all sorts of things so we're only just discovering all of this interesting stuff so the point is it is a it is a daunting thing you'll never be able to get to grips with all the birds out but on the positive side you probably know more than you think already i mean even if you can't put a name to it you probably you'll hear a sound and say oh i've heard that before that sounds familiar where did i hear that and it sort of just grows from there i mean one way to learn sounds is to actually try and see the bird vocalize. So if you can see a bird singing, opening its bill or closing its bill and singing, that sort of, the combination between the visual and the audio seems to reinforce the, the connection of that sound quite a bit. And, you know, to a large extent, I think bird watching should actually be, be, be called bird listening because vocal communication is the primary way in, in which birds signal each other, in which they communicate. So shouldn't it, doesn't it make sense that it should also be the primary way in which we observe birds and and you know all you can ask any expert that's it's at the end of the day in the field it's 70 percent of it is just sound it's a very under it's of underestimated importance in, in bird id but there's no going around it. it is a it is a skill that takes experience and practice to learn i mean it's like it's like learning a new language but you start with the basics and, and work from there try and learn a new one every week something like play a game and have a challenge and the you know family can challenge each other I don't know you have to be creative to, 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 to learn it but what I can also tell you is that you get to a point where it's sort of a tipping point where it becomes a lot easier 
we can actually sort of almost uh, you almost uh, have like a sixth sense about it where you can tell you know that it's, it's some bird from that family or it's a small bird or it's a big bird or it's, it feels um, alarmed or you know you sort of just get a glimpse into the language of birds eventually so justin jacobin asked this question what advice do you have for younger birders my advice for younger birders would be to be patient with the old people Young, young birders are, after uh, any find them to be extremely sharp in the field. You know, they've got very good senses and uh, they've got a thirst for knowledge. But jokes aside, I would say just not to be too hasty in finding all the birds. I know it's tempting to rush around and chase all these reports and, and find all the all the rare birds. But like you said, Adam, I mean, you get to a point where you've seen pretty much everything and then it's boring and it's expensive, you know, to see life. So I would take it slow and sort of enjoy every sighting. And try and figure stuff out for yourself, you know. And that's the best way to learn. I grew up before the internet and all of that, so I had to figure stuff out myself. And I think that's a very powerful learning tool, is to, to struggle through it yourself. Instead of just putting on Facebook and asking for an ID, you know, that sort of instant fix. Even if you have to keep it in a box for, for a year or two and come back to it later, there's an exciting story. There's a, it'll be in one of the new uh, African BirdLife magazines, but... Uh, called Peter Stacey emailed me recently and he said now he's got these photos of a bird that he took in, was it 2007, that he couldn't identify. And it turned out to be a new species for the country, Madagascar Pratton. So that's pretty exciting. I mean, that's, that just shows you you have to have patience to, uh, to get to the right ID and struggle through it. And that's how you do it. So Tristan Spurway asked the question, please can you give identification advice on vagrant warblers such as eastern olivaceous and blackcap? Yeah, um, so Eastern Malvaceous Warbler is one of the, the predicted vagrants that we, that we probably will pick up at some point in Southern Africa. Uh, much like Upchus Warbler, which was seen a couple of years ago in PE. To be honest, I've only spent a little bit of time with these, these Iduna Warblers in the Middle East and so on. It's going to be a combination. With Warblers, it's always a combination of, of different things. So it's not just plumage, but it's also size and shape, the way it moves, where in the bushes they sit. And behavior with these eastern olivaceous, they've got a, a pretty good tail where they, they sort of tick their tails downward every few seconds um, and they make this check call note. So, combination of factors like that is going to get you to it. But it's going to be a tough ID, make no mistake, it's, it's not going to be an easy one. The, the black caps, yeah, black caps, a bit of a different story. I saw so many of them now in the lobby, and they, they're actually really common there. So, I mean, they must come through in fair numbers into Zimbabwe, I'm sure parts of, the, of northern South Africa. They're sort of a bit of a forest edge bird and they seem to like mountainous areas a bit. So I would, I would expect places like Machabaskluev and along the Escarpment and some to be good, good spots for them. Although there have been a few turning up in weird places. But you know, being a long distance migrant, they do, they do sometimes wander off the, off the beaten track. If you see them well enough, black caps are easy. I mean, the males are super diagnostic with that black crown. The females, that, that brown, you know, it's not like a cesticula where it's a sort of a subtle rufous. It's, it's like contrasting, very strong reddish-brown cap. But as you know, it's, it's with warblers, you hear them much more often than you see them. So black caps do sing in Southern Africa. I've heard them singing in, in Zim. So their song is a, is a lot like a garden warbler, but it's a little bit more sort of fluty, a little bit higher pitched. But it does take a practice here to, to distinguish them. 
But some advice would be really if you if you see anything weird or or anything that you think might be interesting, just document. You know, try and make, make a sound recording of your phone. That's probably going to be um, the best evidence that you can get. And photographs and make lots of notes on how it behaves and where what sort of height the forage is at and any any sort of any salient features that you can that you can see. It's exciting stuff. I love warblers. Most most advanced warblers, uh, uh, advanced birders have this inordinate fondness for warblers for some reason. They, uh, they're awesome little birds, despite being so dull in plumage. Definitely, it's something I'd like to grow in terms of being able to identify warblers and that type of thing. Fancy, just the last question: How can people order your books and possibly some of your bird paintings? Yeah, it's a it's a odd time now with lockdown and everything. But I mean, all the orders are through fancypeacock.com. So the, uh, the books of the, the Albigeis is, is out of print, um, as we mentioned. Um, why it isn't, kids, we've got a garage full of them, so please do take them off my ass. I'm not sure which paintings I have left, but I do have some prints lying around here. But yeah, all the details are on fancypico.com. And we'll make sure to put the link in the comments also, just so people can click on the link there. Fancy, I really, really appreciate your time. Cool, thanks, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, it was really awesome. It's a pleasure. Um, uh, and thanks. There's so much practical advice that's come out of this, and I appreciate you giving up your time. Yeah, no, thanks, Adam. It's always fun to chat to you. Let me know if you want to if you want to talk about something else, maybe the the bird sounds or whatever else you want at some point. Oh, definitely. Thanks, Fancy. I really appreciate. It. Thanks, Amalina. Okay. Thanks so much, Fancy. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. I don't know about you guys, but I know I learned a whole lot. So Fancy has kindly sponsored a book for a prize giveaway. So here's how you can win Fancy's Bird Book, a full field guide for kids. Firstly, you must follow this channel on SoundCloud. And secondly, head over to Instagram and follow the Birding Life's account. Send me a direct message on Instagram, letting me know that you have followed the Birding Life in both SoundCloud and Instagram, and you will go into a draw to win. How easy is that? Please note, the book will only be posted once the postal services are operating as normal. Thank you so much for listening today. And until next week, be blessed and happy birding.